Hello and welcome. This is an audio recording of an IFG live event. Good afternoon and welcome to the Institute for Government. My name is Nick Davies and I'm a programme director here. On behalf of the Institute and Burgess Salmon, who have kindly partnered with us on this event, thank you very much for joining us for this discussion on NHS procurement. The NHS spends over £30 billion a year on procurement. This includes critical clinical services, medicines, equipment, IT, building maintenance, catering and cleaning. Its ability to spend this money well has been under the spotlight during the pandemic, with questions raised about value for money and transparency. In recognition of the need to improve consistency, tackle health inequalities and meet its net zero goal, NHS England has recently created a new central commercial function to coordinate the work of more than 4,000 staff working on procurement across the NHS. So how can the NHS make the most of its collective buying power and ensure the money isn't wasted? What lessons can be learned from NHS procurement during the pandemic? How can the NHS create more resilient supply chains? What role can procurement play in tackling health inequalities and the NHS's commitment to reach net zero by 2045? And how can the NHS take advantage of the changes proposed in the procurement bill? To discuss these questions and more, I'm delighted to be joined by a brilliant panel today. We have Jackie Rock, uh, Chief Commercial Officer at NHS England. David Hare, Chief Executive of the Independent Healthcare Providers Network. Luella Trickett, Director of Value and Access at the Association of British Health Tech Industries, and Patrick Parkin, partner at Burgess Salmon. Each of our speakers will make brief opening remarks. I'll then ask a few follow-up questions before taking questions from the audience. If you have a question for one of our panellists, please raise your hand if you're here in person or submit them using the Q&A function if you are watching online. And please give your name and organisation when doing so. You can submit questions if you're watching online while we're speaking, and I'll try to get through as many of them as possible. Finally, we will be tweeting from the at IFG events account using the hashtag IFG procurement, and I'd encourage you all to tweet as well. Right, without further ado, I'm going to hand over to Jackie Rock, Chief Commercial Officer at NHS England. Thank you. Thank you very much. Hi, everybody. Great to be here today. Um, had a very pleasant walk through the park um, just outside, so... Uh, um, we're all ready and raring to go. So I just want to um, talk a little bit about sort of some of the NHS kind of priorities and the, the importance of commercial in this opening speech. So first of all, I'm the Commer- Chief Commercial Officer in NHS England. What does that mean? So, um, I mean, I could do a whole hour just on that, quite frankly. But um, it, it basically means that I sort of had the governance of, of the, the commercial across the entire system. But also, I've got quite significant teams doing buying within national buying, within my, my function. And obviously, I've got oversight and governance of NHS supply chain as well. So, um, I think it's important to reflect on, on where the NHS is right now, and you'll all be very, very aware of that. I mean, we're, we're coming up to our 75th birthday this summer, which we're really, really excited about. Lots of events. Um, you'll be hearing from the Prime Minister, you'll be hearing from us, and right across everybody that's involved in the NHS. And we've always been an organisation that adapts, that is agile, that brings in innovation. I mean, that's healthcare, right? That's what we do. And so, therefore, the commercial aspects of that is so critical to delivering and making sure that we've got those pathways for innovation. We've got the easy ways to do business with us. And we've got a long way to go on that, but it's a really, really poignant point about, you know, NHS at 75. I mean, the the, the second point I want to make is, you know, and and we've already, already heard 
the the impact that COVID had. It's interesting because people have sort of stopped talking about COVID. Well, we haven't stopped talking about COVID in the NHS and us and other health organisations across the entire world. This is going to take us years to recover. This is going to take us years to 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 you know to address our critical things. You know, we've got significant issues with um, with our emergency care, with our ambulances, with our elective backlog, with our maternity and dentistry and primary care. These are all things that you're really aware of, you know, and we've got a long way and, and we, we are delivering some really, really successful plans on all of this. But, you know, again, the commercial and the procurement side of this backs up. I'm part of every single one of those clinical pathways. What we do backs up to deliver. You cannot, we cannot achieve the NHS's ambitions, our short term and our medium term and recover in the way we need to recover for the country without procurement and commercial. So really, really important that, um, you know, we, we make sure that everything is at the right place at the right time, you know, for the right cost um, with the right supplier. So we're going on a transformation path as well in the NHS. It isn't just about recovery. This is about bringing the NHS from sort of, you know, where it's been into the future. And we know that tech enablement is going to be absolutely critical to do that. We know there's an awful lot we've got to do to literally, you know, embrace AI, embrace digital, look at our systems architecture. And that's, that implies to commercial, but that implies right the way through the NHS. Uh, you know, we are moving to ensure that we integrate health with social care. We need to start bringing in the 21st century genomics um, you know, health, uh, health uh, advancements. It's a really exciting time for the NHS. Um, so that means from a commercial perspective, you know, all these things that we've got to do, we've got to start leveraging the market. We've got to start, you know, we're one of the biggest buyers. We are the biggest buyer in government of public spend. We've got to start leveraging the market. We've got to start (coughs) buying really strategically through category strategies. We've got to get a grip on our frameworks. We need to massively enhance our supplier management relationships. Um, You know, there's, 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 there's a whole raft of things which I'm hopefully we'll get the chance to talk to in terms of some of these big initiatives that I've, I've, um, I've put in place. Uh, But I'm really pleased to announce, you know, as, as we're talking about tech, that today we're launching our new um, our spend comparison service, which has got a new benchmarking tool right across the NHS. This is just how we're taking technology now and we're actually putting it out there to enable better commercial. Um, this is going to identify you know, potential cash flow savings when you're switching products. It's going to be really transparent. For the first time in the NHS, we've got the data on spend, and that's because we rolled out Atomis over the last year to everybody. Everybody's using it. And now we've got this spend comparison tool again for the first time ever. Everybody's going to be able to see, am I getting the right thing at the right price uh, with the right supplier and be able to model and forecast options and what do I do if I do things differently so very very excited about that and you know we've we've done the forecasting and the modeling and if if the entire NHS system um, uses a spend comparison tool in the way that we want it's going to be a minimum of 44 million reoccurring savings a minimum a year and you know, this is pretty exciting and so what, what is exciting about the NHS is, is sometimes just switching the dial a little bit has massive impact on our commercial uh, our commercial capability. And then finally, just on our people, there's over 4,000 people in procurement in the NHS. Over 4,000. There's, there's my team, there's people in the NHS supply chain, you've got people obviously in DHSC, and then we've got 
a considerable amount of those thousands are out in, in the trusts and in the ICSs. Um, we've got to focus on the capability of those people, on the training, on the career pathways, on the accreditation and the qualification. Because personally, I, you know, I want the best commercial and procurement service in the world. Our patients deserve it. The British people deserve it. And we can do it. So we've got a lot of we're doing um, around sort of the people and, and, and talent and training. So you know, in summary, hopefully I haven't gone too far over my five minutes. You know, there's there's kind of five key things I'm trying to land at the moment. And I've got really, really clear vision, pathways and execution on. One is, yeah, the NHS needs to buy better. Right. We really have got quite a bit of work to do on that. We've got to start leveraging and shaping the market. We've got to do this through using sort of category strategies. Um, and collaborative collective procurement amongst us all. We've got to start buying at the right level. We've got to start taking a good hard look. Should we be buying things at a national level, at an ICS level, at a regional level, at a local level? We've got to take a good hard look at that and decide how we do things because we all know that buying the same product or service 220 times with 220 different trusts isn't good for suppliers and isn't good for the NHS. So we need to do some work on that. Thirdly, you know, we've got to ensure that we put the right pathways for innovation in place. Um, a lot of work's been done. I speak to a lot of innovations, a lot of small SMEs. We need to do better at that in terms of signposting to the market and how people come in. And a lot of that is getting a grip on our frameworks. Um, yeah, well, I could talk a lot about the frameworks, but we, we need to get a grip on it. Um, fourth thing is supplier relationships. Historically, you know, the NHS in terms of our relationships with suppliers sort of peaks and troughs we've got to get serious about this now and we you know we we are we're having brilliant engagement with industry bodies smes large strategic suppliers it's going to change on that and then um finally it's just as i said it's about professionalizing the workforce so thank you all for coming today there's there's a lot you know when you look at a panel for an hour I mean, I'd like to talk to you all day um, and I'd like to take you down each of these sessions all day. So we'll try and cover as much as we can, but I'm delighted to be here. Thank you. Thanks, Jay. And I'm sure we could have you back at some point in the future as well. <laughs> um, we're going to hand over to our next speaker now. It's David Hare, Chief Executive of the Independent Healthcare Providers Network. Great. Thanks, Nick. And thanks for the invitation today. Whether I could speak all day on this topic, I don't know, but uh, let's, uh, let's certainly make the best use of the, of the time we've got available. I think first thing to say is brilliant to put uh, an event on on this particular issue. Sometimes eyes can glaze over a bit when people talk about procurement and commercial issues. It's absolutely central to um, you know public service productivity and efficiency and whatever one's views about the sort of future outlook for the UK economy, we know that we are going to be under material pressure to make sure that every penny of taxpayer spend is spent wisely, whether that's on goods or on services, and therefore this conversation um, is clearly clearly really, really important. From our perspective, who do we represent? We represent organisations that deliver clinical services, both to private patients and to NHS patients. So it's in the area of services that I think we have most, uh, the keenest level of interest. And we've, we've followed with interest, and in, in you mentioned this, the, uh, the procurement bill currently working its way through Parliament. I think some really interesting principles around that, competition at the heart of the regime, ensuring delivery of value for money, transparency of opportunities, opening up services in the drive towards competition. And certainly for those organisations in our membership that deliver services uh, that are commissioned by local authorities, for example, quite a lot of interest in that. Of course, it doesn't pertain to frontline NHS service 
clinical clinical service delivery for which there is um, effectively a carve out, and I'll come on in a second to what that um, what those regulations might look like. It is, it, I think, it's interesting, and I think it's just worth noting that that hasn't been without its contention. So when the bill was passing its way through the Lords, um, uh, Baron Sprinton, Lib Dem peer, was asking, "Well, why is it that clinical services for for, for the NHS are excluded from this?" Um, Baroness Noakes, Conservative uh, peer talked about a culture of NHS exceptionalism. Was it right the NHS was excluded from these, uh, from these principles? And, 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 and the Labour peer, um, to kind of have a bit of a cross-party hat-trick on this, um, uh, Phil Hunt was talking about the potential for significant confusion across multiple regimes, whether that be where goods and services come together under different regimes, or potentially you're looking to commission across local authorities and the NHS because you've got potentially, you will have uh, two quite different procurement, uh, procurement regimes. So it hasn't been without its contention. That said, the die is cast, and very much, I think, frontline NHS service delivery uh, will be will be excluded. So we await with interest, as an industry, the uh, the provider selection regime, which is uh, due at some point over the course of the the summer. Uh, the last time this was consulted on was early on in in 2022, um, and I think you know we need to have quite a hard look at the extent to which that will drive the necessary value that we we want. Pre-pandemic, I think only around three percent of NHS clinical services contracts were let by competitive tender. The vast majority get rolled over through through incumbents, and you know it's certainly looking at that regime. You know, if you're doing a good job, I think that is literally the terminology. Um, then the ease with which that can get rolled over as an incumbent continues and I think we are concerned about a degree of watering down of where a provider can go when they've got a concern about uh, a particular decision other than the courts Um, I think the proposals in the consultation was that sort of a neighbouring integrated care board would have a look at something and and take a view well that to us I think lacks lacks quite a quite a strong degree of, 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 of rigor so when that comes out, I think it will be critical. It's not just about the rules, it's also about the culture. I think, you know, when it comes to NHS service delivery, there's been a, a sort of fairly long-standing now move uh, in, in rhetorical terms, and I think actually as well, away from competition towards collaboration with integration. Um, I would merely offer the reflection, I think, that that pendulum can swing too far. We're aware of the political rhetoric from sort of 10, 12 years ago around the health and care Act 2012 and some of the resistance, and I'm by no means uh, arguing for every part of NHS service delivery uh, to go out to market. Much of it, uh, there, there simply isn't a, a market. But I think we need, as we, as I come back to that point of principle around why procurement matters, why commercial principles matter, and pay tribute to Jackie for the work she's done on this in the in the time she's been in in, in post. It matters in service delivery as well because that's where the bulk of the spend goes, and it's important therefore that we use procurement wisely, and it isn't an alien term that people just turn away from, that we get that right as we look at services as well as goods. Great. Thank you, David. We're now going to turn to our third speaker, Luella Trickett, Director for Value and Access at the Association of British Health Tech Industries. Thank you, and thank you for the invitation to be here today. For those of you who are not familiar with ABHI, we're the largest trade association representing medical devices, diagnostics, and digital. So that's everything from a tongue depressor right through to a COVID test and an MRI scanner. Um, We've got nearly 400 members. (coughs) 85% of those are SMEs. And that's actually very reflective of the sector as a whole. And me, my role, um, I lead on the work we do around the adoption and spread of innovation, procurement and sustainability. So probably absolutely in the sweet spot of what we're going to be talking about today. Um, I'm going to kick off by saying... The NHS 
is not one organisation. I often describe it as the biggest franchise in the world. And that does mean that it doesn't do procurement like one organisation would. And as Jackie's already alluded to, in many cases, that might not be the right thing to do anyway. But even if you're going to do it once, you have to get the whole of the system behaving in the same way in order to get the benefits of doing it once. That all said, the NHS is an incredibly powerful buyer. Jackie alluded to the fact that it needs to use its buying muscle. I can tell you now, in our health tech space, its buying muscle is absolutely front and centre to every supplier's thinking. Without the NHS, if you don't have the NHS as one of your customers, you're effectively not in business in the UK. It's as simple as that. David and I have chatted about this. While we do sell to his members, his sector, they don't make enough that way to keep going. So that power needs to be used incredibly carefully. I'll reflect on that in terms of resilience. If you buy once and buy big, in the consumer sector, if something falls over, there's enough plurality of supply out there for things to carry on. If that buy once, buy big falls over in the health tech space, a patient at the end of the day suffers. And we saw that through COVID in some of the challenges we had around getting access to things. And I know that the NHS is thinking very carefully about the resilience. Procurement plays its part in delivering on that. It does need, again, as you referred to, really good category management and a deep understanding of the market to get that resilience piece right. Health tech has a really, really big opportunity to play a role in delivering the priorities of the NHS that, again, Jackie talked a lot about them. Elective recovery, um, net zero, all of that requires procurement to think differently. If you only ever focus on price when you're undertaking procurement, you won't actually realise the benefits of some of the tech that you're buying. You know, can you use tech to treat patients out of the hospital setting? That'll tick the net zero box, but it'll also tick some of the productivity and efficiency boxes. So we need to see a way of realising non-cash releasing savings that deliver on those priorities. And that is around value-based procurement. Frameworks. Jackie again talked about that. The NHS's favourite way of buying stuff. Um, that's all well and good, but those frameworks can be too long for health tech. They may not be long enough for other things that the NHS buys, but they can be too long for health tech. You know, if you've got a four-year framework and you happen to enter the market with a cracking innovation and you weren't on that framework, you're out of the market for four years. Um, and that means that tech is not getting to patients. Um, and let's not talk about the frameworks that go a little bit further than the four years that they should potentially go for. And so the, the procurement bill, some of the potential changes could address some of those, could bring some challenges at the same time. Um, but the fundamental thing is the NHS will have to use the tools it's given differently because it could carry on just doing frameworks. I've talked about innovation just then as being held out of the market. I just want to say that we believe there's actually three types of innovation. There's transformational, 
clues in the name. There's incremental, where you may get added outcomes, be they clinical or productivity and efficiency. And then you've got what we're calling replicative, which may come to the market at an improved price point. So they're still valuable to you. But the three of them need to be treated differently in procurement. And what happens a lot of the time is that incremental and replicative get treated the same way. And we end up with price being the driver and those added outcomes being missed. Now, there are other actors in the system that play a role in making sure that those are genuine outcomes, clinical involvement, patient involvement, and organisations like NICE, really important in that space. But ultimately, as well as having incredibly knowledgeable procurement professionals, you must have that clinical voice, you must have that patient voice, otherwise we won't get what we all want, which is better care. Thank you very much. And now to our final speaker, Patrick Parkin, partner at Burgess Salmon. Thanks, Nick, and thanks for having, thanks for having me today. Um, conscious that some of you won't be aware of, of, of Burgess Salmon, uh, we're an independent UK law firm, and we are procurement team works across the public sector and advising um, bidders into, into large public procurements as well. Um, my work's in the, in the health, healthcare space, uh, help, also advising health tech businesses and, and, and other tech businesses as well, bid into the public sector. Um, as the lawyer on the panel, um, I, my, my particular interest is in the, the legal developments that David and Luella um, have already alluded to. And healthcare, as, as David has said, um, has the benefit of having not one but two new legal regimes that are, are coming around down, down the line. First of all, the procurement bill. So for medicines, me- medical devices, all of the consumables that the NHS will purchase will be covered um, by the, what will become the Procurement Act, either late this or early next year, to replace the existing legal regime. And there's some real positives in there. Uh, we'll have um, central supplier registers that will speed up the way in which suppliers can register for new procurements. Um, I, th- I think in one of your previous sessions, Nick, one of the speakers said that we are potentially going from 71 different methods of registering suppliers down to one, hopefully. And, and that, that's very much dependent on the, on the tech being rolled out. But that's a real positive that suppliers into the NHS and the NHS itself can really benefit from. Uh, there'll be a central register of framework agreements coming down the line. So, so you know, building on what Jackie was saying about getting a grip on, on, on frameworks so that suppliers have an easier way of, of, of looking across the market to see what frameworks are available and choosing the one that suits them best and having the full range of suppliers to, to choose from. Um, so that's another real benefit. We'll have the concept of open framework agreements as well. So, yes, it, it opens the door to uh, potentially eight-year frameworks as opposed to four-year frameworks, <laughs> but with the ability to open the door to new suppliers coming online and being a shortlisted supplier during that eight-year term. So it won't be the case, as you have now with many frameworks, of a four-year term um, and no ability for, for, for new providers, new services, new prices um, to get onto that framework agreement. So that, again, is, is, is a real positive. And there's a whole new transparency regime <clears throat> with um, a plethora of, of, of new notices. Um, now, that will come with, with some, some complications because the, the administrative burden on, um, on purchases will we'll be great to make sure that the new notices from pipeline notices to transparency notices and variation notices to contracts, to make sure that they're updated on, on an ongoing basis. That, that will be quite some task. But the quid pro quo is that suppliers will have a real insight into how um, NHS purchasers are, are planning procurement, what's coming down the line, and so that they can plan their teams accordingly to put the best bids in. On the flip side, you have the NHS provider selection regime that, that, that we've spoken about already as well. 
And whilst there's a lot of rhetoric in the proposals, and they are just proposals at the moment, um, we're at the consultation stage, we're yet to see the detail. So we must reserve judgment for now until we see, see the detail. But at the heart of that are three new award procedures, um, two, two new and, and one, um, one for um, competitive procurements. But those two award circumstances, the two new circumstances that involve, first of all, rollover of existing contracts where the service is good, um, and the second of which where um, an authority may want to change the service or, or change the provider and it considers that a particular provider is suitable, do raise a lot of unanswered questions at the moment. And I think there is potential for there to be some un- unintended consequences um, from those new award mechanisms. We've, we've talked about tech enablement. Now, tech enablement is absolutely central, as, as Jackie has said, to NHS procurement improving. And if there are rollover mechanisms and an ability for a procurement team to choose a suitable rather than the best provider, query of that is going to incentivise um, NHS purchases to, to really go out to markets and um, engage with that market meaningfully to make sure it has full knowledge of, of the scope of services that it could procure. That, that's something that really does need to be looked at closely um, when the new regulations are published. So, I mean, coming back to the original question, how can NHS improve? I think clarity in those new regulations is going to be absolutely essential there. Brilliant. Thank you. I'm now going to ask a question of each of the panellists before opening up to questions for those here in person and those watching online. Jackie, I wanted to come to you first. You talked about the the long tail of COVID and also the the value of transparency. And so I want to bring in a question uh, that Chris Smith uh, sent me ahead of the event. And he said that NHS England uh, hasn't yet published copies of 213 COVID-related direct war contracts worth 2.4 billion, uh, nor transparency data for payments over 25k for the last two years worth 60 billion. So he wondered uh, what you'll be doing to close the gap and what your plans are for getting better strategic insight from your procurement information to buy smarter and better in the future. That's an interesting question. Um, And uh, I mean, clearly, you know, I haven't wasn't aware of that question, so I haven't. Been, I can't address them things individually. But when it comes to you know, when it comes to the sort of the COVID, let's, let's address that first of all and lessons learned. I mean, you're all aware there's a public inquiry going on at the moment, so that you know, there's there's limited um, limited comment that I can make um, in terms of COVID. But it, you know, we're very aware of it. Um, we're very aware, obviously, we're part of the the public inquiry, and a lot of these questions and things that you know maybe the market doesn't feel we've been particularly transparent about, or there's still a lot of questions will be addressed um, and I'm personally um, part of that of that response um, to that inquiry um, and of course I think from a COVID perspective it's all about the lessons learned right it's um, it was a really interesting time um, you know if anyone's interested in my bio I, I, I was um, a chief commercial officer for Test and Trace and then uh, UK Health Security, Security Agency really proud of what we did there um, very very proud of it but the speed and the agility that the NHS worked under more of a sort of a command and control was quite phenomenal and you know we all said we've got to learn lessons and we've got to make sure we bring this into our future you know my biggest fear is that we just sort of shift that you know we go back to the way it was done before we don't learn the lessons from that um, so and I think the, the the second part of your question was about sort of I think the question was around sort of transparency and and how we signal to the market as such um, so again you know the you know NHS procurement is not separate from government procurement 
right? Not we, 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 we are spending taxpayers' money. I work very, very closely with the Cabinet Office. I work very closely with government uh, commercial organisation. I'm, I'm still part of that organisation, whether they'll have me or not. You know, I just turn up. Um, uh, it was my own organisation. And so we are, we are, as a government, very, very, you know, very aware of you know, making sure we put pipelines out there, making sure that we're doing adequate forecasting to the market, uh, making sure, again, you know, I, I want to shift, especially when it comes to innovation and what Luella was talking about, you know, where are we telling the market what we need? Where are we saying this is our problem? Go help us find a solution. We, we need to do much more of that. Um, I mean, one, one of the things I just wanted to highlight, um, when I came and took this job on, what I didn't need to do was, was carry out a review of what's wrong with NHS procurement. Did you know, it's one of my favourite facts, since 1950, there's been 34 independent reviews on NHS procurement. 34. So that was easy. I didn't need to go and do that again. Um, and, you know, you look back to the Carter review. Um, and, and, you know, the, the, the brilliant work that Patrick Carter and the team led there. Um, and actually, I've met him recently. We went through that review again together, which was is, 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 is um, over a decade ago. And what's been done about it? You know, we identify the things. What's really being done about it? So, yeah, we've got to get really, really serious about this. We know what needs to happen and all the things I talked to and alluded to. We've got to raise the profile of commercial. We've got to raise the profile of procurement in the NHS. Um, I don't need to raise it with our ministers because I think they're used to me coming and talking to them about it. But it just needs to be part of everyone's topic. Um, you know, every board meeting, every ICS um, um, Exco meeting, commercial and procurement has to be up there. So um, I, I've sort of answered a few things in a roundabout <laughs> way. Sorry if I didn't didn't. Was there any area that I didn't cover? No, no. I think that covered okay. uh, most of it. While we're just on the topic of um, kind of post-COVID, I wanted to actually um, come to you, uh, Luella, and bring in a, another question that was sent to me in advance from uh, Professor Albert Sanchez Grails. Uh, so you spoke about resilience, uh, and he asked. Um, what panellists think is the right approach to logistics and how much weight should be given to resilience and security of supply? So, very interesting question, um, because in some cases, uh, because the focus of price can be dominant, um, even when the right questions are asked of suppliers about their resilience, it doesn't actually make enough of a difference in some of the ultimate procurement decisions. And I think that is where Jackie's alluded to the fact that she doesn't want the NHS to not remember the lessons learned. Um, and if you put enough weighting on resilience, you will naturally end up with a more resilient outcome. Um, we know that the NHS is taking uh, a risk-based uh, approach to resilience. Um, and that's a very sensible way to do it because otherwise you get an industry created in trying to understand the resilience, which is um, a little bit pointless. But if you can say, do we buy this product from the same country, even though we buy 17 different types of it? You've got to ask another question. Um, if it's not all from the same country and it's from five, six, seven different countries you've probably got a bit more resilience in that. If you find it's the same country, the same region, you've got to ask even more questions. And that's where procurement needs to play its part. Ultimately, though, we mustn't confuse resilience with business continuity. They are subtly different things. You need both. 
Um, but what we can't do is go, we buy this from 17 different suppliers, therefore we're resilient. Thank you. Um, David, I want to come to you next. You spoke about the importance of culture and practice. Um, so I wondered what you make of the current capacity and capability and culture in NHS procurement teams and what you think is necessary to kind of train them up to take advantages of uh, changes in the procurement bill and the provider selection regime when it comes. Yeah. So I can only really talk about services rather than, rather than goods. Uh, I suppose I come back to my remarks in my opening commentary. I think that really over the course of the last 10 years, probably even longer than that, and obviously the NHS has been on a journey starting in the 80s with the internal market and a desire to try to sort of drive greater kind of productivity and stimulate the market through a degree of contestability. I think the last 10 years... It's all that's largely been paused, I would say, because you had a, a set of legislative reforms that came in in 2012, 2013 that almost never, never really happened, actually, because they were, you know, to quote others, slightly dead on, dead, dead on arrival. And then um, I think a view that, right, we need to try to, to move to a much more sort of integrated, coordinated approach. And that's when I come back to the statistic about how little clinical service delivery work ever really gets procured. There's contract management, but there's not significant procurement. And of course, then that has an impact on on culture, because I think the subliminal message is, well, we don't really do this. This isn't what we are about. This isn't how we therefore drive improvement, whether you're a CCG, ICB now, um, or or a trust. So, you know, I think in looking at, you know, where you know there will need to be a drive towards procurement, and I think there is some capability out there. But I do worry that that culture, which is we in clinical services don't really do procurement, therefore we don't need to worry too much about that, is a barrier to getting that right. Patrick, changes to culture and practice are very difficult, take a long time. Are there any easy wins for NHS commissioners that are procuring services? I think that if you look, take some of, some of the lessons from the procurement bill, actually, um, there are new provisions there that really clarify the, the obligation now to, to engage with the market. And if you don't engage with the market ahead of a procurement, to, to, to plan the specification, make sure those contract terms are acceptable to the market. You're not in, including um, terms that, that, that are going to block out key providers from the market. Um, you're, you're, you're warming providers up to the fact that a procurement's coming down the line these are all benefits that are going to result in a much better procurement. And procurement often gets a bad name because of the bad procurements, not because of the ones that have been planned very well. Um, and yes, they can be resource intensive, they can, they, they, can, they can cost, but that's an investment in a much better long-term service more often than not. So where the procurement bill is actually kind of leading the way with, with clarifying those, those pre-market engagement obligations, it would be very useful to see um, some... some provisions reflecting that same principle in the provider selection regime so that if a decision is taken to roll over services or if a decision is taken that a particular provider is suitable there is at least some accountability and some governance around that decision it's an informed decision rather than that decision being taken because a team is particularly resource stretched at the time and doesn't have the capacity to to run a new procurement Uh, so so i think that 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 would be front and center for me Thank you. I'm now going to open up to questions from the audience. So can I please ask that you keep your questions short and that they are, in fact, questions and not statements? Uh, Please also say your name and where you're from and wait for the roving mic to reach you. Uh, So I'm going to take a few at a time. So hands up. uh, Firstly, the lady there, then this gentleman here and then this gentleman here. 
Good afternoon. My name is Joan Newman and I'm from the Cabinet Office in the Complex Transactions team. My question is to all the panel, but to Jackie particularly, how do you hope to see product development aligned with category management, please? Fantastic. Uh, and then... Hi, Edward Jones, NHS Confederation. I wanted to ask a question about this, the, the two regimes. We've got a Health and Care Act that's been designed to shift from competition towards collaboration and the provider selection regime doing the same for health service commissioning. Um, uh, the procurement bill obviously is, is cross-government and still based in competition. That's going to cover a range of services, including social care services commissioned by the NHS and, and local government. So in a nutshell, to what extent does the procurement bill help or hinder health and care integration? Thank you. Thank you. And then over here. Uh, thank you very much. Some very helpful presentations. My name's Mark Goida. I'm founder of Tomorrow's Company. Over 30 years, I've witnessed so many conversations about what went wrong in uh, corporate governance disasters, where again and again, the question comes back to culture. Uh, we've been talking about the culture of the commissioner, of the procurer. I'd like to ask a question about the culture of the companies being procured from. Wouldn't it be wonderful if we had a world in which there was a clear way of assessing the culture of organisations we're putting on our registers, having some confidence that their stated purpose and values are lived in practice. Uh, I want to ask whether people are aware of something that exists now that does make it more possible to do that, which is a newly established British standard which we call the trust test, um, BS95009. I'd love to know if people are aware of it. I'd love to know if it's in likely to be in use to help a more professional and rigorous approach to assessing the culture of those we're buying from. Thank you. Uh, Jackie, I'll come to you first, particularly on that, uh, the first question from Joe on kind of project management and development, and I'd also be interested in your thoughts on integration and the trust part. Yeah, sure. So, um, for, I mean, category management is the is the answer for me um, for a lot of our problems. It sort of starts with that collective category management. Um, if we don't collectively across the NHS agree how we're going to buy something in a collaborative way, agree what frameworks we're going to use, what options and choice, how we're going to buy it, you know, what it, you know, who we're going to buy from. You know, we all the things I've talked about just aren't going to, they're just not going to land. So it all comes back down. So thank you for the question to really effective, collaborative, signed up, agreed and intelligent category management. And you are specifically about if you get the right category management and the right strategies in place, therefore, how does that, you know, how is that going to involve product development? So, you know, I've seen and I've, I've run brilliant category strategies and ones that just sort of tick the box. A brilliant category strategy will look at the forecasting. It will look at uh, what our demand is. It will look at where we want to take the NHS in the next five, ten years, and therefore what products we're going to need, products and services, innovation, tech, um, consumables, yeah, we're going to need. And it should be part of that strategy. And that, therefore, you know, so not only do we... As part of that category strategy, all agree, all sign up. This is how we're going to do it. We can message the market and we can therefore ensure that the product development and again, innovation will be a massive part of that. So will social value. Um, so will net zero. Everything all comes back to that one collective category strategy. So I'm really confident that 
Um, and we are starting to pick these off now. We're going with, um, I've got sort of like five or six ones that I'm really focusing and intervening on and putting category strategies across the NHS. And already we're seeing massive kind of, you know, not only efficiencies, but but amazing results in productivity. So, um, yeah, that, that's, that's it's, it's, the, it's the answer for me on that one. Thank you. Um, come to you next, particularly on that question on whether you think the procurement bill will help or hinder integration? Yeah, I, it's not ideal, is it? Um, you know, that, that you've got an attempt to try to integrate services. You mentioned social care, Ed. I'd also touch on some of the local authority public health commission services, which will be subject to the Procurement Act when that comes in, as opposed to the, uh, the provider selection regime. Um, and, I mean, the devil will be in the detail when we eventually see the regime, because I think we'll then be able to ascertain just how far they are, or both regimes, how far apart both of those things are. I think it is going to need some quite focused attention on guidance. I think people are going to have to look at um, how they how we can kind of support both sets of commissioners, the NHS and the local authorities, to work together. Actually, when you get into if an organisation, if a commissioner is planning on doing a procurement, actually there's sort of a limited range of sort of deviation that you can do on that because you need to follow a particular process. I think the issues will be more around local authorities feeling they need to test a market and the NHS deciding it doesn't particularly want to do that because that's the way in which it, it does things at the moment a little bit. So I think it will be a thorny issue that will need quite a lot of focus attention through guidance. Thank you. Well, I'll come to you on the question on product development. Yeah, so on product development... Um, for health technologies, obviously a lot of the product development does come through collaboration and R&D with the health system itself. So the sort of development process is hardwired into the health system. Where it's more challenging is the framework approach where the NHS is buying things that already exist. Um, there is an opportunity to have a more strategic relationship with health tech companies around product development. That said, the NHS already has some good initiatives like the SBRI initiative where they do put out calls for companies to bid for some funding to develop products that meet specific challenges that the NHS has set out. So there's stuff going on already, but I do agree that we could get a little bit more strategic about how we do that. Uh, Patrick, any thoughts that you'd like to share on those questions? Uh, I'll pick up some points on, on, on the procurement bill, if, if I may. I think we've, we've already touched upon some of the positives, and I think I echo what David has said um, about there's going to be a real emphasis on, on the guidance and training. And Jackie, you mentioned you know, you're a 3,000-strong procurement team, and, and, and all of those um, you know, procurement officers will need uh, not to understand just the procurement bill, but also the provider selection regime. Um, so that will be quite an intensive period of, of, of upskilling that, that's necessary to run you know, good, solid procurements. Um, you know, we've, we touched upon the improvements uh, earlier on, but there, there are certainly question marks over, um, you know, if I dig into some, some particular aspects, the quality of the information that um, unsuccessful bidders will get at the end of the procurement. We don't have the language that's currently in the procurement rules at the moment about um, the precision of the information they'll be given. And I think that's important to give bidders confidence in the procurements that will take place. Um, so they keep on coming back to market, keep on developing the products for the NHS market. Um, there's a lack of certainty around some of the languages to the um, extent to which uh, the authorities must have regard to the core principles of procurement, transparency, fairness, equal treatment, um, and what those changes in language actually mean. So we don't know whether some of these changes are simply because we've taken an EU directive previously and we're moving it into, into plain English drafting, 
or if, if there is a substantive difference that's actually intended. Um, so, yeah, I, th- I think for me it's really a case of, of, of uh, an intensive period of, of upskilling for, for both those two regimes is, is going to be key. Thank you. And I, I recognise that we haven't actually answered the, the third question on uh, have people heard of the trust test? So I'll just take a yes or no from panellists on that. I, 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 have, I haven't, but very quickly, I think it's, it, can, it can be built in um, to a procurement. I haven't looked at 95009. The, what we currently have is a mandatory and discretionary grounds for exclusion in, in the regime. They have been strengthened under the procurement bill. Um, which should go some way to, to making sure that we have credible suppliers with the right culture um, serving the public sector. Great. I'm going to ask for yes or no from the other panellists, so we've got more time for Sorry, questions. <laughs> it's not a yes or a no, but ABHI has a code of conduct that all ABHI has a code of conduct that all members must sign up to. Um, we also have BSI as a member, and we did a collaborative working session with the Department of Health and Social Care and NHS England. No, I haven't, but I will look for it. I think it sounds really interesting. Uh, just on culture, I tend to find that um, commissioners do actually have a good understanding often of what the culture is, but more could be done on track record uh, as part of the procurement process. You know we're not going to say... No, no. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Absolutely not. Um, but I can... But so, so, yes, I have. Out of the trust list. How extensively we're using it, I can't answer that, with, but, but it's going to be very interesting. I'll look into it. And I think, you know, your question was, was more around the sort of the culture and the, and the you know... Again, it's another topic, how we're using social value now and how we're using that social value to ensure that, you know, um, as suppliers bid, and obviously it's 10% of their bidding costs now, you know, how, you know, I need suppliers to, to start helping with, with sort of health inequalities. Um, and we'll be looking very much at the way that they, you know, how they recruit, how they treat their staff, their health and well-being. There's a whole range of things on social value. It's probably another topic mm-hmm. for another panel. But um, thank you for the question because it's absolutely critical. This is about people and this is about culture and this is about how we work together. Thank you. I'm just going to take some questions um, from online. So two related questions, one from Suki Joy and another from Charles Rapson. Um, and Jackie, I'm going to come to you again uh, first on this. So first from Suki is, what's the best way to get more one-man bands and SMEs into the supply chain uh, without the consultancy premium? Uh, and relatedly, Charles Rapson asks, uh, where do you see the role for social enterprise in the supply chain and what are the barriers for engagement with the NHS? Okay, so... Um yeah, the one-man band. Often the innovators, you know, some of the best innovations have come out of people's garages, right? Um, we all know that. And uh, often the best innovations and ideas have come, come from clinicians. They come from our own people. They come from our surgeons, from our <coughs> nurses, from our porters, from our caterers, because they're there on the ground and, and they see things and they know what they need. So we have got, um, we've got quite a lot of, um, of pathways. Uh, we've got the, um, the acceleration, the AAC um, pathway, which brings is, is set up solely for small, you know, individuals or very small startup companies to come into the NHS to be able to pitch to us to get funding, to get grants, and be taken through that whole process. So we have got a lot out there. Um, it's easy to find out about um, on on site um, on our website, um, and obviously I'm happy to to give more information. But we do put a lot of lot of focus on making sure that because that's where future of the NHS often comes from and I think it's the same with sort of the social uh, the social enterprise we've got particular pathways which I won't go into a lot of detail right now but we we have got very clear defined ways to come in and how you will then be looked after and you'll be navigated through can we do better on some of these of course but they do exist and um, I, I'm personally giving my commitment um, that from a commercial procurement perspective we'll, we'll work um, to enhance them continuously 
And David, I'd be interested in your thoughts as well on getting kind of smaller providers, uh, social enterprise providers into the supply chains of your bigger members. Yeah, I think it's a, it's a, really, it's a really good point. I think, um, I mean, we don't tend to, in clinical services, have quite as many frameworks as, as Lella and, and Jackie have been, have been describing. I think there's probably a bit more local commissioning that goes on. I think that can be helpful, actually, for smaller organisations because sometimes the framework model can just be totally overwhelming and huge and expensive mm. and so on, although I know a lot of work's been done to try to make that, uh, to make that better. I think some of the best commissioning that I've seen has, has really encouraged bigger organisations to partner with, through their supply chain, smaller organisations. And I'd always encourage smaller organisations not just to look at the commissioner and have that conversation, but also to talk to some of the larger, and even some of the mid-sized suppliers to become partners to those organisations. And in areas like diagnostics at the moment, and we're hopeful that um, you know, there'll be some more sort of private sector-led community diagnostic centres coming, coming along. I suspect the provisions for that will need to be quite big organisations, well-capitalised, but a focus on their supply chain capability and working with smaller um, partners, I think, will be uh, would be good there as well. And Luella, do you want to add on that? Yeah, so Jackie's talked about some of the system support, so the Accelerated Access Collaborative, the MedTech Pathway Mapping Innovation Service. Um, I have to say, ABHI obviously has mm-hmm. a big number of SMEs, and a lot of my job is helping them navigate signposting where they should go to as well. Um, but... It's always dangerous when you're sitting next to a lawyer to say something about that. (laughs) My understanding, and and you can call me out for being wrong in front of lots of people, is that one of the provisions in the bill may be that you can look to treating people appropriately, not equally, which could address some of the challenges. So you could make a different decision for an SME as long as it was appropriate Mm -hmm. and commensurate for what you were doing. Am I right in that? This is on stage legal. Well, there you are. This is is where where you come back to, I think, to the the have regards to language that's in there at the moment and and quite what that means in practice. And this is where we're going to need to be looking at the guidance and secondary legislation. So typical lawyer's answer, I'm afraid, is that we're we're, we're waiting for the guidance and, and, and quite what a lot of the bill actually is going to mean in practice. But I agree that that, that does appear to be an intentional change in, mm. in, in language which, um, which needs to be focused on. Great. We're going to take another round of questions um, in the audience. Can I please ask people to keep them very short? OK, so we'll take those three. Firstly, lady over here, and then the first two gentlemen that put their hands up over there. Thank you. Good afternoon. I'm Anisha Misri. I'm from the Complex Transactions team in uh, the Cabinet Office. My question is for Jackie. Um, uh, Thinking about your priorities, Jackie, as you set them out around buying at the right level, um, how do we face or how do we tackle the challenge of the buy-in from the regions and different, you know, given the federated nature of NHS? Um, it's not just about setting up the right uh, sort of procurement strategy and approaches, but it's also about getting the buy-in uh, from the people who are the budget holders. And how do you expect to address that? Thank, Thank you. you. And then, firstly, back row over there, and then, yeah, two rows in front. Gavin Heyman, the Open Contracting Partnership. So we work globally to like, open up and transform public procurement. So it's a question to all four of you. Um, Patrick, you said about the new UK procurement bill has the noticing regime. It's different. It's going to require people to adapt. At the same time... Those notices will be born digital, so we'll actually have a data set on what the UK is buying from whom for how much mm-hmm. in a comprehensive way, so a single source of truth. My question to you all is, uh, overall, do you see that as a burden or a benefit for you in your particular roles? Thanks. Thank you. And then two rows in front. Thank you. Uh, James Sibley from the Management Consultancy Association. Um, I actually attended another Institute for Government event on uh, procurement and use of AI, 
Um, and I wondered, that covered things like designing tenders, assessing tender bids. Is this something the NHS is thinking about, the challenges and opportunities of, of AI and procurement? Thank you. Uh, thank you, James. Always keen for people to say how good our other events were. So uh, thank you uh, for that. I'll give you your £10 afterwards. Uh, so I might come to Jackie first on those three really interesting questions about uh, getting buy-in, whether transparency is a burden or benefit, and AI. Yeah. So getting buy-in... Um, I haven't really been described as a wallflower, so um, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty loud in terms of just raising the profile of commercial um, and getting people to sit up across the NHS and listen to it, um, and you know that, and, and my brilliant team as well. Obviously, you know um, it's not just it's not just about me; it's about the team. Um, and so we've been going out, and we've been very, very. You know, you have to be quite deliberate. Right, but the real answer to that: How am I getting buy-in from all of the chief execs, all of the boards, the clinicians? I show them the data, right, and that's what's been missing. Um, and that's—I don't think we've been doing a very good job of that up until now. When I can sit down with um, a head of an, an, an ICS and I show them what they're buying, where they're buying, in in layman's terms, how much they're paying for it, what service they're getting, and then I show them what they're getting in another trust. Or, you know, all of a sudden, everybody's ears prick up. When I can show them the efficiencies, when I can show them how we can absolutely, fundamentally, through what we're buying, how we implement it, impact the, the, you know, because it's all about the patients at the end of the day. People really listen. When I take, when I bring clinicians into a room, um, had a brilliant example a little while back where we brought a lot of cardio, the top cardio surgeons in the country, and we had a discussion about stents and how many different types of stents we were buying. I'm not going to go into the numbers here, but it was significant. And actually, just that one conversation, we managed to basically half the amount of stents that we need to buy. And therefore, we got a whole new strategy around it. So it is about, it's about engagement. It's about talking to people in a language that they understand, whether they're running an org, a trust, whether they're, 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 they're running a clinical pathway. It's showing them the data. And it's actually it's taking people on that journey of how commercial is not only fundamental to what we're delivering in the NHS, but how it can help them. So that's been really, really successful. And then can I ask on the question of AI, because it's actually something I wanted to yeah. ask as well, because one of the kind of advantages or disadvantages, depending on your perspective for generative AI, is it makes it much easier to bid, and therefore the volume of bids you might be receiving might be much, much higher. So I just wonder kind of what work you yeah. and NHS yeah. as a whole have done to prepare yeah. for that. And the answer is yes, a massive yes. Um, and, and we're, still in, we're still in the middle of, of sort of prepping for that. In fact, uh, our Secretary of State um, has just been on a, on a, on a trip um, to Japan and, and, and sort of AI has been very much at the forefront. Um, and so, you know, of course, I'm getting questions. Like, so how do we buy this, Jackie, and how do we buy this effectively? I've been blessed because recently you'll be aware that um, NHS Digital um, has come into NHS England. So I've now got a, um, a team, um, a large digital buying team, um, that work and, and they are absolutely fantastic. And it's capability that was sort of outside NHS England before. So I am working, I, I'm not going to go into too much details at the moment because we're still working through that strategy. But um, I've got great tech buyers. We're looking at it. We're looking at it quite fast because, you know, we, we need to go out and start procuring um, AI and it's, it, it needs to be bought differently. We need to understand how to buy it. Yeah. And then finally, just on that transparency question of like benefit or burden. <laughs> Well, transparency can never be a burden. You know, everything that we do, everything that we do in the in the NHS, this is this is our service, right? And um, yeah, I you know I'm, <laughs> I, I I welcome it. That's, that's a quick answer. 
Thank you. David. Uh, can I pick up on the AI question first? I think mm. it's a really interesting question and the extent to which procurement drives innovation in AI or providers generate the innovation and then that kind of flips through into, into what commissioners do. I think there's some really interesting areas in, in, within this. So, um, you know, one of the things we're seeing a lot of providers using AI for at the moment is bringing together patient feedback. Um, some really interesting platforms for being able to take the legion of bits of patient feedback that you get, particularly as a national provider, and be able to very quickly identify themes that allow you rapidly with your clinical teams to look to put in place different changes. That I don't think it's a particularly a procurement question, although that might start to flow mm. through into how things get commissioned, but it's very much being driven by the, by the provider. But I think there's also some really interesting questions around kind of provider innovation driving commissioner nervousness. So a really interesting area on that is scanning and the potential for AI to um, massively improve the quality of scanning. But, of course, that isn't without its contention because of the consequences on the human labour force. And so sometimes, you know, we've seen examples where bids have gone in around, well, actually, we can quite radically change the workforce. And the commissioner has got rather nervous about that because that requires a a quite challenging conversation with the the human capital that you've got within that um, within that system. So I think it's absolutely fascinating moving at speed, the extent to which procurement's driving that or it is providers sort of driving that change. But procurers will need to respond to the way in which that's, that's working. Thank you. Um, I'm agreeing with Jackie in that transparency should never be seen as a burden. Mm -hmm. What is a burden sometimes is the number of times you have to provide the same information to different people Mm -hmm. um, and centralising all of that so that suppliers only have to do it once would be a great benefit. Thank you. Patrick, one word. with what the others have said, I think is very important that it's not a burden. I think when we see the new notices um, published, uh, the, the success of that regime is going to depend on, on how straightforward it is for those to be completed. The quality of information in all of those notices actually serves the intended purpose. So no, absolutely benefit rather than, rather than burden. I'm actually going to give one more final question to uh, Jackie, just pick up one from online. So um, Paul Featherstone has asked, how can commercial colleagues in NHS England work better with colleagues in DHSC and continue to reform the relationship to improve commercial outcomes across health? They've <laughs> got a great question. Um, you know, I think, um, I think we work brilliantly together, actually, <laughs> already. You know, I, we're one health family. Um, and I think this is really important. You know, as Luella mentioned earlier, the NHS isn't one in organisation. That's very true, but we are one family. We are one health family. And so whether it's the Department of Health and Social Care, NHS England, out in the trust, one of our numerous, and we've got many, many arms length body agencies, we are all still one health family. And I, I, I spend a lot of time trying to bring you know, um, that family together in effect um, and how we work together and how we support together. So, um, you know, I'm very, very close and, and my team are very close to the team in, in the department. Um, I've mentioned before, um, we're very close and getting even closer to the government commercial teams because at the end of the day, you know, we've got to focus on NHS, but we're all paying, spending taxpayers' money. And the procurement bill is a wonderful thing that brings us all together as well because it's, it's, it's across whether you work for defence, um, you know, or DWP or HMRC. You know, this is, a, this is for all of us. Um, so actually, I think just the... Just the commercial unity of the government is really, really important, and, and I'll continue to um, ensure that we promote that. 
Thank you. And on that note, I'm going to bring this event to a close. Uh, thank you to our four panellists for a brilliant discussion, to Burgess Salmon for supporting the event, and thank you to all those who've watched today or listened back later. Our next event will be Data Bytes number 42, Getting Things Done uh, with Data in Government, which is tonight at 6pm. Do tune in, and until then, thank you and goodbye. <laughs>